some might deem it appropriate to, to speak on the subject of sex within a church and relationships within church, but given that sex and relationships are going to permeate our society in such a, a way, therefore our lives in such a way, uh, I don't think it's a subject we can ignore. I haven't spoken on this uh, in a year and a bit since I've been here, and I thought it would be appropriate now. That is especially so, given we are um, called by Christ in his prayer of uh, John 17, that though we remain in this world as Christians, uh, we, are not called to be, we are called in to be in this world, but distinct from it. So the, the word there in the prayer is sanctified by the truth of God's word. Uh, meaning that as Christians, we're therefore not to hide away from this world, cutting ourselves off from people and, and all situations, but rather we're to live in this world amongst our friends and being sanctified in that process, in that living. That is being disciplined to become more like Christ uh, with the help of the Spirit and the Word in that process. Now, how do we do that with regard to relationships and the, and the topic of sex? Where should God be in our relationships? Now, if we were uh, kind of took an ascetic view of life, that is, you know, they, they, they basically think that the withholding of good things, whether that's a food or of travel, or of relationships, or sex, that belief that going without is more spiritual. Uh, if we were to go that way, that is a way that is not encouraged within God's word. We're not called to be monks or nuns, detached from people and society, and therefore sex and relationships. Though that is a calling of some, is not the calling for all. Rather, we're to enjoy the beauties of God's creation in man and woman, in nature around us, in food and travel. And we're to thank God for his enormous generosity to us, that gift of common grace for all. But the distinction of Christians is that we we recognize all that we enjoy is from God. For he is the creator. He is the sustainer of this world. And whilst Christians, we live in this world, we're called to be distinctive in this world, in, in all the blessings that God gives us, not to be drawn by societal norms and practices. We're therefore going to examine tonight how, as Christians, we're to live in this world and to engage in relationships and enjoy God's gift of sex. But before we do that, let's set the scene. Uh, I hope this will just sort of give us a, an, understand, an understanding of the scope of this kind of talk and what all it can do, I suppose. First, we need to note that the biblical sexual ethics stand very distinct from the sexual ethics of the world around us. We do not live in a Christian state. Therefore, fewer and fewer people within your workplaces and your friends will agree with what the Bible tells us on this subject. And you have to say, sometimes I don't blame them for that. You know, society is actually pretty confused about how the church views sex. Mainly because so many in over years and years have compromised over the last century in, in secular Britain. And the people around us just don't know where we stand. We, as in corporately, the whole church. The biblical position is therefore today a very marginalised position. Uh, where before the church was listened to, it is now freely ignored and even mocked. The Christian life is not an easy life to live. And this is most acutely felt in this sphere of life. But for those of us here tonight, with faith in Christ, with the Spirit of God in our hearts, we're acutely aware, aren't we, of what God has done for us in the gift of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he saved us for a life. A life that is satisfying. A life that is fun. That is given purpose and meaning in his son. Now no one might want... No one of our friends might want to listen to us and what we know about how we want to please God with regard to relationships and sex. But we want to listen to God because of all that he has done for us in Jesus and give our lives in gratitude to him. If any of you here tonight and you uh, wouldn't consider yourselves Christians, then I hope you felt welcome. I hope you feel welcome throughout the evening. And uh, we've got some good nibbles at the end, so that hopefully placate anything that we say or do. Um, but please do join us afterwards and ask questions. It's really great. That's what we're here for. And I assume that, you know, there will be some of you here tonight. But what I hope you gain is simply this. That sex is good and God invented it as such. A way of enjoying uh, man and woman. And the way that God shows us that in his word is the best way, the most satisfying way, and ultimately the way that pleases him. I hope you gain clarity also about the Christian life. And mostly I pray that you see that life with God, engaging in sex and relationships in the way that he has shown us clearly in his word, is a way that should be sought after rather than mocked. The Christian life is hard, but it is so good. It is so satisfying. Now, we enjoy life now, as I'm sure you do too. But most importantly, life now is, is like a glimmer of what will be in the future. Because we have that wonderful eternal hope of eternity with God. Secondly, let's note personal struggles. I missed out the first introductory point, but there we go. Personal struggles. Of course, it would be foolish for me to stand up here kind of piously stating biblical truths being patronising and divisive, it is never going to be a kind of you and I. We all struggle in this area. And though I am married, it doesn't mean I cannot speak on premarital relationships. Of course, it's an issue I can't ever experience again. But what I can hope to do is, in being married, I can look back and help you examine what perhaps you know, some of the mistakes I made and the wisdom that I have gained from uh, uh, from those uh, areas. Thirdly, let's note imprecise analysis. I mean, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but when examining kind of what the culture is doing, I am no social scientist, and I will not claim to be. Um, what I've done is just had a look around and seen what people are saying, what commentators are saying. But anything like that is imprecise. It is kind of like trend-based analysis. Therefore, I can only make broad statements. And you might think, well, that doesn't fully represent some of my friends or what I think and so on. I'm not trying to you know, define anything. I'm just going to give broad brushstrokes. Points one to three, therefore, will be very short in comparisons to point two and four when I look at the Bible stuff. But before we turn to God's word, um, uh, to the biblical side of uh, sex, let's firstly examine how sex is viewed in our culture. So we get to point one on your outlines. Betty Davis, who was uh, the first lady of the American screen, actress and American idol, once said this, sex is God's joke on human beings. Jay Leno, the American chat show host, said this, for the first time in history, sex is more dangerous than the cigarette afterwards. It's all right, you actually are allowed to laugh tonight, it's okay. 
Why? Well, many consider sex is dangerous because it has become, and our first little point there, a disposable commodity. Since the Great Depression, Second World War, uh, many commentators agree that life has become far more disposable. You look at fast food, you have a car for now, a couple of years, and you change it. A house and clothes, everything. We look to change as quick as we can. And we live in a society that's basically defined by impatience. We want the newest thing. We just want to change uh, from the norm. And sex is viewed similarly. National statistics from the government state that over a third of men and a quarter of women under the age of 25 reported, this is two years ago, having more than one sexual partner in the previous year. Now just under 10% of the population in the same statistical analysis said they'd have five or more sexual partners in that year. Now, people have had sex with one person, and then they get rid of them for a new, different model. And what we're seeing is such impatience is leading to an obvious rise of many, many consequences. Uh, For example, in STDs and so on, over the last decade, there's been a tripling of STDs, affecting both male and female alike, most prominent in London, throughout the country. And uh, just a horrifying one is 100,000 cases of chlamydia alone in just last year. Disposable sex has consequences. But why has sex been denigrated so much in our culture? Because many see that basically that sex has become just simply, solely, a means of physical release. Second point there. Abraham Lincoln, the first president of the USA, said, No matter how much cats fight, there always seems to be plenty of kittens. I assume what he meant by that is that despite our failings in relationships and communication, men and women alike, for both all of us, the the kind of physical act of sex is just too hard to ignore. Sex has simply been denigrated to a way of getting rid of pent-up frustration. No control is deemed necessary. Therefore, for many, sex lacks purpose and becomes kind of an ever-increasing search for more sexual and physical satisfaction. However, in reality, isolating sex as kind of purely physical leads to an increasing frustration and disillusionment without any reference to commitment. Sex, if you like, becomes just animalistic and quite empty. Lastly, most, most agree that sex has become, little subpoint there, an expression of power and freedom. One of the books I was reading there in the last couple of weeks uh, in, pre- in preparation for this, a writer commented on a, a conversation that he had Uh, with uh, his basketball team within the locker room. That's the changing room for most of us. But there we go. And uh, whilst he was at university, his teammates were exchanging this conversation regarding their techniques of getting women to sleep with them. And uh, the conversation finished with one man telling how he would um, take someone he'd been dating a few times to go around a furniture store. Sounds a bit strange, but... Basically, he was pretending as he was going around the furniture store, he would, he would look to the store and he, he'd comment with, with this girl how much he really liked the children's furniture. And then he would turn the conversation and say, uh, would you be interested in having children? I love children, uh, and so on. He's basically kind of showing that he's, he's the family man to be. And uh, his comment uh, with regard to this uh, within, within the changing room is this. Girls are sucker for all that kind of family talk. I get them into bed every time. 
Simply, it's a power play. Men manipulate women all the time. You will if you love me. It can just be male bravado to knock another woman off uh, comparing to the tally of your peers. I've seen that uh, amongst my friends in hockey teams and rugby teams. But increasingly so, it's being thrown around the other way. Women are no less guilty. All their tools, if you like, of power are maybe different, but they're no less manipulative. The liberation of women in our society over the last hundred years has brought many positives, voting rights, equal pay, and many more, but all commentators, all of them without exception, both secular and Christian, all note that the liberation of women, both financially and socially, providing freedom, has been the most significant factor in changing the sexual ethics of our country. And shaping family life too. And note that the fault lies not with women, but with both men and women. That they have, in the light of these social changes, expressed their freedoms and transformed sexual ethics in our country. And what results in society at large is a situation, especially amongst the younger generations, that sex is, is simply for whoever, whenever. Woody Allen once said, sex without love is empty, an, an empty experience. But as empty experiences go, it's one of the best. Sex, you see, is very disposable today. And it is dominated by physicality, motivated by personal power, and freedom being expressed. And people, as a result, and statistics show, they are having sex with more and more people with less and less commitment, resulting in less care of themselves and those that they are having sex with. Now this, of course, this trend would be vehemently denied by all my friends sitting around a, you know, a wine bar in Earlsfield, being very British and conservative and middle class. But examination would reveal, if they would just be honest with themselves, that they too feel abandoned by their their commitment-less sexual ethic, as statistics and trends show. Yeah, they they might do it on cotton sheets from John Lewis instead of polyester from Tesco's, but they're still doing the same thing. With that background, let's look at the contrasting view of and show what's uh, the biblical view of sex, if we can. Here, if you can turn to 1 Corinthians 7, I hope that would be helpful, um, just to remind ourselves. We won't read it again, it was brilliantly read, but just I'll, I'll point you down to some of the verses as we go. If sex in the world is a disposable commodity, what do we see in the Bible by contrast? We see primarily that sex is a precious, a precious gift from God. Sadly, many people think that Christians and God are some way against sex. And that's perhaps a confusion uh, from some of those aspects of the Catholic uh, uh, view of contraception and abstinence for priests and so on. Neither of which I don't think have biblical warrant. But sex in the Bible, as we see in 1 Corinthians 7, is to be enjoyed. The context shows that Paul speaks to a church that is wrapped up, if you know anything about Corinth, it was wrapped up in a sexually permissive culture. Nothing was too much for the Corinthians. And such that Paul writes to demonstrate God's sexual ethics in order that they might, in gratitude for all that Christ has done for them, live in a way that was distinctive in that very sexualized culture. Live in a distinctive way, but a pleasing way to God. Verse 1, cast your eyes down, it shows that marriage 
though the second option to singleness, if someone were married, they were to be married to one person. It was monogamous. Of course, that needed to be clarified because within that culture, many of the men would have had many wives. Note also that Paul is speaking of a heterosexual marriage, not not that homosexuality was unknown in those times. Corinth uh, was, if you like, very much famed for its temple of love, which promoted homosexual practice and uh, also prostitution. But Paul shows here that God wants us to enjoy sex, but within a heterosexual and monogamous marriage. Verse 3 is interesting, as a man and wife are called to fulfil their marital duty. It's interesting that Paul here speaks of sex. By the marriage vow, each partner relinquishes their exclusive right of their own desires, their own body, and gives it to the other. It is for them to enjoy. Therefore, if the partner deprives the other by failing to give, uh, uh, they fail to give what God wants them to give. Does God hate sex? Some might say that to you. But I think we see here, God is very, very much for it. He's given it to marriage partners to enjoy. And he encourages, through Paul's writing here, for married couples to enjoy it. I mean, verse 5 is pretty, pretty strong, is it? Do not deprive. And even if you do, not for long. Because you'll be tempted to go elsewhere. It would be interesting, isn't it, if if married couples in this country were to do what God wants. And I'm sure the divorce rate in this country would certainly go down. But also look at the stark reality of sexual temptation in verse 6, if you can. We all know our own personal struggles, don't we? They're articulated there for uh, the church in Corinth. But we know our struggles, whether it's a colleague at work. It's the TV late at night, perhaps the internet, now your little smartphones and all that kind of stuff, the magazines, the films. Sexual temptation is rife, isn't it? Whether married or not, but it remains true that that sex is a wonderful and great, kind gift from God. Verse 7, Paul wishes more were single, but recognises his gift of singleness, but also the great gift of of sex within marriage. God created sex for us to enjoy. I mean, if you're a married couple, I would definitely encourage you to just read Song of Songs together. It's wonderful, if you like, a celebration of sexual love. But the realities of sex, (laughs) married couples will will tell you this, that they're very removed from the, the glitz and the glamour of the TV and the films out there. The reality of sex can lead to frustration, perceived failure, Pain, discomfort, and that's just on your honeymoon. You've got a whole life to live together. See, if it's just a disposable physical release, then you will be utterly disillusioned and give up straight away. But knowing that sex is a gift, a precious gift from God, to enjoy within a heterosexual marriage, to give another yourself in love, if that is your view, the biblical view, then you will want to work at it selflessly giving as you have been given. Sex is a precious gift from God. Secondly, more obviously, 
It is a means of procreation. Flip back, probably the first page of your Bible, Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, who began the European, European Reformation, said this. The reproduction of mankind is a great marvel and mystery. God, had God consulted me in the matter, I should have advised him to continue the generation of the species by fashioning them out of clay. Martin Luther was very much noted that when he um, disbanded the convent near him, um, a number of men walked, uh, a number of men, single men came in and, and uh, graciously married uh, a number of the nuns. One was left, Katharina uh, von Bora. And Luther admitted in his writings later that she wasn't the best looking of the ladies. She was the last one left. But in 1525 he married her and later had four children. Now Luther may have struggled to comprehend why God chose this means to multiply humanity. But he did know that Genesis 1.28 was God's first command to humanity. And that was to have sex and to increase in number. Procreation, of course, is just one part of what sex is and means for humanity. But we cannot ignore it as a command from God. And that is becoming more and more prevalent in our culture today. Apparently, recent government statistics show that 10% of girls aged 15 to 17 in the London borough of Lambeth got pregnant. Uh, uh, Two years ago, that was. Pick up a copy of Cosmopolitan. It's just full, isn't it? Of sex, but with no mention of children. And one writer noted, uh, if you like, a, this is a, a secular commentator, said, contraceptives and peer pressure have broken the connection in people's minds between sex and childbirth. And if they don't work, um, women just nip down to Tesco's for the morning after pill or to a clinic for a quick abortion. Ignorance or denial, they concluded, is creating horrifying consequences. What the Bible clearly shows is that sex, at least in part, is about producing children. Childbirth is a messy process, and apparently it's a painful process. But what a privilege that God has given us in procreation. And let's not ignore the fact that it is a command. It's a privilege, but it is also a command. Lastly, and I think most importantly, sex is an expression of love and commitment. And just flip over one page to Genesis 2. We heard that reading, uh, verses 18 through really to 25 will be uh, the whole reason there. The first thing in Genesis that is not good after God has created is the fact that man was alone. Genesis 2, verse 18, if you know that. And Vaughan Roberts, put, uh, a well-known writer to many of you, put this much better than, than, than I could. He said this, What Adam is lacking is not sexual fulfilment, but relationship. Not orgasms, but company. Vaughan Roberts wrote that, so it's okay. I didn't write that, okay? <laughs> Adam is uh, delighted with what he sees in woman being created, but verse 24 is the foundation of the whole Bible's understanding of how sex is to be enjoyed. 
And these are very famous uh, verses used in the marriage service uh, that many of you all know. Man and woman are joined in relationship, becoming dependent on each other. Because what, firstly we see that they leave, they leave their father and mother, are becoming bound to each other as they unite in a covenant before God and before witnesses. And that promise uh, is worked out as they relationally and physically become inseparable, as they join as one flesh. They leave, become united, and one flesh. See, sex is not about what you can get. It is about what you can give to the one you have covenantally committed yourself to and joined to. Sex is the ultimate expression of love and commitment that people can give to the one that they love. And God intended it that way. But the power that God placed in sex meant that he only ever intended it to be shared between those of one flesh who had committed themselves to a lifelong union before God. Let me recall very briefly a conversation I had with a friend at university in our third year. We played hockey together for a number of years and uh, we were good friends. Big, you know, he was a big guy, big, big beer drinker and all those kind of things. You can imagine what he's like. There we were in a bar and conversation that kind of turned to the normal boy things at university and then we were talking about sexual conquests and all that kind of stuff and off they went. We were walking home though. One guy, a good friend of mine, just popped up and just said this. Let me condense his comments if I can. They went something like that. I've had sex with over 20 women. He wasn't saying that in a proud way. I'm getting married in two months. I've been unfaithful to my fiancé already. I compare my fiancé with others. I want to love and be faithful. But my mind is utterly cluttered with the past. See, in reality, sex is considered by many as just a merely physical thing. But God did not create it that way. And when man and woman come together, and yes, there's an enjoyment of physicality, but so much more is going on, physically and emotionally. And many will try and deny that. But therefore, they carry that baggage around into other relationships, and they suffer as a result. Sex is for marriage. Leave, unite, one flesh. Don't listen to people like Zajar Gabor who said, I know nothing about sex because I was always married. That's ridiculous. Because God wants to promote sex, encourage sex, but within the context of a loving, monogamous, long-term, lifelong relationship of marriage. So what about relationships? Let's briefly examine the world, very briefly, and then we'll look at the biblical point of view as well. So point three, Relationships. Rob, maybe do you want to flick, flick the heating on? Is anyone getting a bit chilly? Does anyone know how to flick the heating on? Rob, do you know how to go into it? That'd be great. Just a little press, that'd be good. Given society's view of uh, premarital relationships and, and what they're primarily driven by, well, let's see what we can gain um, from what we see in the world before we turn to the Bible's view. I think we can follow, um, observe the following two characteristics. Firstly, in relationships... I think what we see in the world around us is that love is pretty, pretty selfish within the relationships of the world. 
And it's expressed in sexual activity, but also in the relationships, both marital and premarital. The fundamental question for most of our friends is this. What will that person give me? What will that person do for me? When I'm walking around with them, in the bed, whatever it may be. How will they make me feel? And even if that's dressed in kind of English conservativeness, relationships are loving, but the primary focus is self, isn't it? And what one can reap through that other person. Therefore, people don't want to get locked into something they cannot later be rid of. Hence why marriage ceremonies within church are at an all-time low and declining quickly. And civil partnerships are, increasing, are, are sort of filling that gap a little bit. But cohabitation is, the, the, if you like, the biggest growing dynamic in that. It's at an all-time high. See, people don't want to get locked into something. There's a trend toward the protection of self. People don't want to be slowed down. It might hinder opportunity in the, in the future. Love in relationships is generally, in our culture and is focused on me, self. Secondly, a result of the first, intimacy and commitment are separated. People want sex, but they don't want to be curbed by their partner. They want intimacy, both psychologically and physically, but they also want the chance to just get out whenever they want, to, when they see a more pleasing option walk by. And the question is, if we're a Christian here today, how much have we bought into that kind of secular worldview, that secular thinking? Are we engaged in relationships or pining after a relationship to satisfy ourselves, to satisfy those needs and whims, our self-fulfillment, our need for intimacy that we perceive? So that's a very brief overview of what the worldview is. is Love is selfish and intimacy and commitment are separate. Let's look at what the Bible says about those things. We have to recognise that dating, going out, um, those kind of relationships um, kind of terms are modern. Only really in the last hundred years has that been the case. So how much should we follow the world and how much should we follow what the Bible says? And what can the Bible show us about premarital relationships. I want to just take two principles to finish because we're going to look at marriage more next week and, um, and also the contentment we can find in, in other things as well. Let's take two principles and apply them to relationships and see how we go. Firstly, love is selfless. Let's turn over to 1 John if we can. 1 John chapter 4. This is very quickly to finish. Do be thinking of questions. If you're new, I don't normally go on this long, but I thought it'd be quite important. It's about relationships, so you probably like it anyway. 1 John 4 verse 10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved, uh, since God loved so, sorry, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now notice what John is saying here. He's not merely describing God's love for us in Christ. But verse 11, he offers offers us a kind of a program of how to love. Uh, And recognise there are no exceptions. The love demonstrated in verse 10 of Christ is giving. It is undeserving. It is sacrificial. It focuses on who? 
the receiver of love, the beneficiary. What does the love bring? It brings freedom. It brings life. It is rescuing. It is redeeming. It is complete. That is the love that God has bestowed on us in giving us his son, the Lord Jesus. And he's saying, Christians, since God has loved us in this way, this is how we ought to love. Oh, we won't do it perfectly, will we? But in all our relationships, our standards should be set by God's love and not how we see love demonstrated in the culture around us. Biblical love is selfless. It is a love which gives for the benefit of another. Secondly, the Bible shows us that intimacy and commitment are united inextricably. They must be together. Of course, man was not meant to be alone, so God created woman to complement him in intimate relationship. But that intimacy is only fully known as a byproduct of commitment-based love. So in Genesis 2, in that passage before, in 18 to 24, they show that God's intention for intimacy was to be, what was it, one flesh. And it's only in the committed leaving and cleaving to each other in what we know of marriage. It's intimacy with a committed, lifelong union. Intimacy and commitment are always placed together within the Bible. As God makes a covenant to his people Israel, he does so that, so that they might know him intimately. Commitment also expresses intimacy. And it allows intimacy to be better experienced. In Proverbs 3, verse 3, do note it, have a look later. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, God says, Let love and faithfulness, commitment word, love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your, uh, your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. There's love and there's commitment. Love and faithfulness. There is something very, very attractive about that kind of loyalty coming together, isn't there? To, yet, to use yet another West Wing illustration. I'm just hooked on that at the moment. But, you know, um, I love the way that the team, all the West Wing team, in moments of dire despair, the president's low, everything's going bad, they all march into the, office, the Oval Office, and with all that kind of melodramatic music building up into a wonderful crescendo, you get each one of them individually standing up before the president saying, I serve at the pleasure of the President of the United States of America. Boom, boom. It's like, oh, it hits you. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. I start weeping at that moment. But there we go. Um, as Christians, we serve at the pleasure of the creator of the whole world. And when we are willing to do that, the very intimacy that we have been longing for comes to us as we delight in honouring and serving and pleasing our Saviour King. Intimacy, you see, is not the exclusive domain of the male-female relationship. As one is prepared to do anything for the other, die for the other, protect the other, look out for the other, as that loyalty develops, so does the relationship. And yes, you get a glimmer of that in a relationship 
husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. But that is a glimmer of the intimacy that we know in a committed relationship to the Lord Jesus. That is how God intended us to enjoy relationship. In the context of loving commitment and loyalty. In relationships between male and female, no less is required. So two principles. One is biblical love is selfless. Two, biblical intimacy is bound to committed Loyal friendship and relationship. I'm going to finish that. I've got other stuff to say, but I'm going to give you a couple of applications. Maybe slightly provocative, but hopefully it will provoke questions. So if you've got a pen, just write things down now. And let me throw out a few applications. They may be fuel for your thinking. Here's one. No Christian should ask for the heart, exclusive time and affections of another if they are not willing to consider marriage. Intimacy, whether physical or emotional, should not be entertained unless marriage is an option. Therefore, and here's my prodding you a little bit, is kind of casual dating, I can define those terms, it's casual dating, is that inappropriate? I want us to discuss that maybe in a bit. Secondly, If the primary question in your mind is, what can we do together physically? How far can we go before we're married, if we're Christians? Then I think what you've done is you've created an imbalance between intimacy and commitment. And I would suggest that concentration on friendship rather than sexual intimacy will show much more clearly whether you are suitable for marriage. Sexual activity, all that does is cloud your judgment. Thirdly, if your defence is everyone else around us is doing it, then you need to know that you won't answer to everyone else. You will answer to God alone. Fourthly, I'm not anti-premarital relationships, but they must have purpose. That is, they must be commitment-based, and they must demonstrate love that is selfless and sacrificial. Think about your relationships. Fifthly, prior to any of that, we must not ignore the love that we must have for one another, as shows in 1 John. Friendships must come first. We're going to talk much more about friendships next week, what they ought to look like within the church and elsewhere. Don't let physical activity cloud your judgment on whether the person you are with will be your committed friend for life. Sex goes through the seasons in all relationships, but friendship will remain. That has to be the clearest thing. Five very, hopefully, pointed things. Why don't you just have a moment to, if you want to discuss with the person beside you, we're going to go on a couple more minutes than we normally would do um, in order to try and get a few points of application. So, a couple of um, minutes to just discuss, maybe write down a few questions if you wish, and then I'll try and answer them.